as Kamar mentioned earlier in the service, there is an order to this world. God has, has put various different aspects of order into the very fabric of this world. We see in this section of Scripture three particular orders of things. We see in the section that I, I just read about wives and husbands, there's an order for wives and husbands. Below that, there's an order for children and parents. Below that, there's an order for bond servants and their masters. These are three aspects, three of these aspects of order that God has woven into the fabric of creation. But we could think of other orders as well. We could think of government and citizens. We could think of church leaders and the general membership of the church. God has woven various relationships of order into the way that He's created things. This one that we're looking at this morning, headship and submission, seems to generate a lot of heat. This conversation about headship and submission often ends with people feeling upset, people feeling worked up, people feeling irritated or offended. It often generates a lot of heat. Not the love part, not the husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, but the part that says wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's the part that seems to generate a lot of heat. I've never heard anyone raise objections to husbands love your wives, but I have heard lots of people raise objections to wives submit to your husbands. So let's begin understanding that. Let's begin by trying to clear away a few objections to this teaching, and then we'll look at what the text says and try to unfold it more positively. The first objection that people sometimes raise is that submission necessarily entails inequality. That submission necessarily entails inequality. But this is certainly not the case. There's, there's, there's definitely an inequality of authority in terms of any headship and submission dynamic. But it doesn't necessarily follow that there's therefore an inequality of dignity. It doesn't necessarily follow that there is an inequality of worth, of value, etc., etc. And this becomes clear when you just look at some of the other aspects of order that God has woven into this world. Again, just to look at the others that are found in the immediate context, which will be coming in the next couple of weeks. Children and parents. Well, who's going to say that a, children, a child is intrinsically less valuable, inferior in his person to the parent? That a child is not of equal dignity, equal worth as his parent? This is why, as, as Christians, for, this is one of the reasons why we're, we ought to be pro-life. We ought to stand against abortion because the equality of people is not based upon their size or their age. So you have a tiny, tiny little one-day-old being in the womb. Because they're tiny, they're not unequal in worth and value. Or because they're one day old instead of 30 years old, they're not unequal in worth and in value. So we insist as Christians upon the basic equality of human beings, whether they happen to be smaller or larger human beings, whether they happen to be younger or older human beings. We believe in the general equality and the inherent dignity and worth of all human beings, regardless of their size and age. And yet, there's an authority dynamic between parents and children. The children are to be subject to their parents, and the parents have uh, authority over their children. <clears throat> or again, you could look, we could look at bond servants and their masters. There's all kinds of cultural things going on here. We'll talk about it in a couple of weeks and try to unfold this further. But the closest thing that we could probably bring, bring across would be workers who are under contractual obligation to their employers to meet certain conditions, to meet certain demands, etc., etc. There's a... You can't just easily extricate yourself from work that you've become contractually obligated to perform. And so in a relationship like that, there are, there are duties, there are responsibilities, there are authority dynamics, and yet we would not say that a worker is intrinsically inferior to his supervisor, 
that, that supervisors are greater human beings of greater worth and greater value than those who are under them authority-wise doing their work. Again, we wouldn't say that. And again, government, do you think that our members of parliament are greater human beings and that we are inferior human beings to our elected officials? Of course not. Or again, in the church, do you think that pastors are greater human beings and that the general membership of the church is innately inferior to pastors? Some self-serving pastors would have you believe this, but it's rubbish. It's nonsense. Jesus says to his disciples, who he eventually appointed apostles, you are all brothers. This is the case. We are all brothers. I'm your brother. You're my brothers and my sisters. There's no inequality of worth or value happening here. And yet, there is an authority dynamic. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. And so we can see lots of other counterexamples in the way that God has created the world where there are authority dynamics, but there's not innate degradation of person or devaluation of personhood. And so this objection that submission necessarily entails inequality falls flat. It doesn't really hold any weight when we really come to think about it. The second objection is a little bit easier. The second objection is, I don't like it. Well, lots of us don't like broccoli either. But the reality is that you can't change the objective facts about what broccoli is and what broccoli will do for your body, whether or not you like it. You can't change the objective facts, likewise, about God weaving an order into the way things are and saying this is good, this is the way that things ought to be and just write it off because you don't like it. You can't change what is objectively true simply because you don't like it. There are lots of things you might not like that are still true. A little kid when he falls off his bike doesn't like gravity at that particular moment in time but it's still true. There's lots of things that we don't like that are still true. We have to deal with the text. We have to deal with the text. We can't just say, well, I'm not going to listen to this part of the Bible because I don't like it. The Bible is God's Word, and God's Word is true, regardless of whether we like it or not. So we have to deal with the text. So another objection that is raised in trying to deal with the text involves verse 21. We touched on this at the end of our message last week. It says that part of the Spirit-filled life is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so those who don't want to just baldly say, I don't like it, or those who, who realize that it's incoherent to say submission necessarily entails inequality, raise a more ostensibly biblical objection against head and submission, saying that verse 21, because it says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, cancels out any talk of one particular subset of humanity submitting to another particular subset of humanity. Well, well, two things we could raise against this. The first is that, do we really think Paul is so incoherent that by the time he gets to verse 22 in writing this letter to the Ephesians, he forgot what he just said in verse 21? We, would, we wouldn't do this with anyone else's writing. Even if someone wrote a Facebook post, we wouldn't misinterpret one sentence to mean something in directly contrast contrary to what the previous sentence had just said. Any, any fair reading of Ephesians chapter 5 can't say that verse 22 is cancelled out by what verse 21 says. That's not, that's not fair to do. Secondly, we've just gone over a number of dynamics that God has woven into this world in which authority and submission uh, are involved. Again, Wives, husbands, children, parents, bond servants, masters, government, constituents, and church leaders, and the general membership. Unless we're prepared to do away with all of these, give the house keys to our toddlers, give the car keys to our toddlers, live in an entirely egalitarian world, free from any governmental authority, free from any parental authority. The, unless you're, you're prepared to Tell your boss, your employer, next time he or she asks you to do something, you have no authority over me because Ephesians 5.21 says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Unless you're prepared to go that far, that argument is inherently, internally inconsistent. 
And so you can't go down that route either. So we've knocked away a number of objections that are raised at a popular level and we, we've seen that none of those really hold much water. Here's one that I think holds a little more water and we're going to deal with a little more thoroughly as we unpack today. This is it. It's scary. It's scary for a woman to enter into a relationship with a man that is lifelong, that she can't get out of easily, that Jesus said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And to understand that a dynamic in that relationship as God has designed it is that she ought to submit to him as unto Christ. That's scary. Because in this world in which we live, not all men are good. In fact, there's that saying, the best of men are men at best. And so even good, relatively good, godly Christian husbands are sinners. Even relatively good, godly Christian husbands are sinners. And there are many men in this world who are not relatively good, godly Christian husbands. And so for a woman to think about entering into a lifelong union with a man in which she is required to submit to him as unto Christ can be an intimidating prospect. Let's hold that thought. We're going to come back to it later in the sermon. (coughs) But before we get to... Situations that are less than ideal and talk about situations that are less than ideal. Let's look at what this passage is saying is ideal. Let's deal with the bullseye first and then we'll talk about what happens when we don't hit the bullseye. What happens when things are not the way that they ought to be. What this text says is ideal is that a marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. That's what this text says is ideal. He talks about the relationship between a husband and a wife. And then he says, he quotes from Genesis, where it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. We talked about that in our Genesis series, that marriage was always ultimately intended to be a picture, a portrait, a type of the marriage between Christ and His church. Marriage is a real thing. It's a good thing. We don't spiritualize away everything the Bible says about real, earthly marriage. But we understand that even from the beginning, when God wrote, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In God's mind, as those verses were penned, Christ and the church were always in mind. That's a profound thought. So we are to order our earthly marriages in a way that paints a true and accurate picture of Christ and the church. That's what this passage is saying. That's the ideal. The ideal is that both the husband and the wife will relate to one another within a marriage in a way that paints a true picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Well, if we're to do that, then we need to know what is the nature of the relationship between Christ and the church. And Paul goes immediately there. Immediately there. As he issues these commands, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, he immediately goes to talk about Christ and the church. And as he says to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, he immediately goes to talk about Christ and the church. So let's do that. Let's hold these things in mind. Let's talk about what this passage says about Christ and the church. And then let's come back to the relationship between husbands and wives as articulated in this passage. The first thing that we see in this section about Christ and the church is that Christ is the head of the church. That He is, secondly, its Savior. 
The third thing, those are, from, those are both from verse 23. The third thing that we see is that Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. I'm lost track of whether I'm on fourthly or fifthly, but you understand. We're going through and we're listing the things that this says about Christ in the church. That He might sanctify her, verse 26, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Then in verse 29, we read that Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. Those are the things that we see in this passage about the relationship between Christ and the church. So Christ is the head. Christ is the Savior. We're going to touch on these things as we go. But let's go immediately to the third thing that it says. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But firstly, Christ loved the church. Think about this. How could Christ love someone who did not exist? At least not even in a at least not at some level. Obviously, we were not born until very recently in human history. But in God's plan, we existed from before the foundation of the earth. If we go back to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, we read that God the Father chose us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. We saw when we exposited that chapter that everyone whom God chose in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, in due time, in due time, also gained redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of their trespasses. And each one who was chosen was not only redeemed and forgiven, but was sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so we said that this can't be just a generic choosing, but this is the choosing of individuals. Way back here, before the foundation of the earth. And so what, when we go with that in mind then, because this is in Paul's mind, remember this is all part of one letter that Paul's writing. He says that Christ loved the church. All those whom God had chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Christ loved that. Christ loved that. <clears throat> Jesus is not like a man exercising at the beach, hoping somebody will, he'll catch somebody's eye and be able to strike up a relationship with somebody that he doesn't yet know. Christ didn't go to the cross like that hoping to do something wonderful so that maybe someone would love Him. He didn't go to the cross to try to get a bride. You see? There were people whom He loved. And He gave Himself for them. Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Now Christ is like a man whose wife is in peril and he goes and does a great deed to rescue her from her peril. The cross is not like a man exercising on the beach hoping to catch the eye of some lady that he doesn't yet know. The cross is like a man whose wife is in big trouble and he will stop at nothing to rescue her from the trouble that she's in. That's a lot more akin to what the cross is like. Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. We weren't, he wasn't in trouble. We were in trouble. Where was Christ? Where was Christ when Adam fell? Where was Christ when Adam and Eve ate that fruit in the garden? Christ was not in trouble. Christ was with the Father and with the Spirit in blessedness. As Adam and Eve 
were driven from the garden. Where was Christ? He was not in trouble. They had entered into misery, but He was in unspeakable blessedness. They had been cursed, but He remained in blessedness. Christ was not in trouble when Adam fell. Where was Christ when God in Genesis 6, as we've been looking at in our evening series, where was Christ when in Genesis 6 God looked upon the evil and saw it full of wickedness and determined to destroy every living thing from the face of the earth but Noah and his family and some of each of the kind of animals? Where was Christ when the rain came down? He was not in trouble. Christ was not in trouble. Christ Jesus was with the Father and with the Spirit in eternal blessedness. Where was Christ Jesus when Noah and his family came out of the ark, as we're going to look at tonight? Where was Christ Jesus when Noah's progeny fell back into the same kinds of sin that his ancestors had fallen into? Where was Christ Jesus when we plunged ourselves again, not heeding the warning of the flood, back into wickedness, perversity, corruption? Where was Christ when they built the Tower of Babel? Where was Christ when Lot, a godly man, found himself surrounded by the corruption of Sodom and Gomorrah? Christ was not in trouble. Where was Christ when Joseph was sold as a slave into Potiphar's household in Egypt? Christ was not in trouble. Where was Christ when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt? Christ was not in trouble. Where was Christ when they had to do battle with the inhabitants of Canaan? in order to take possession of this land that God had given them? Where was Christ when Achan stole things that he should not have touched and the Israelites were defeated before their enemies and their courage melted on the doorstep of the promised land? Like maybe God who brought them out of Egypt might not get them in. Where was Christ? Christ was not in trouble. Where was Christ throughout the period of the judges when each one did what was right in his own eyes? He was with the Father and with the Spirit in eternal blessedness. Where was Christ Jesus throughout the time of the kings? When some kings were better than others and some kings were worse than others, but all in all, the general trajectory of the nation of Israel was a downward spiral. Christ was not in trouble. Where was Christ when the Assyrians and then the Babylonians came upon God's people? Laid siege to their city. Put men and women and children to the sword and committed other atrocities against them. Led many away into exile. Where was Christ Jesus when these people were in trouble? He was not in trouble. But where was Christ Jesus where was Christ Jesus 2,000 years ago where was Christ Jesus when that cross was erected on Golgotha so long ago you understand he entered into our trouble He entered into our trouble to rescue us from our trouble. Christ was not in trouble. His bride was in trouble. Christ was not in trouble. His bride was in trouble. Those whom the Father chose for salvation from before the foundation of the earth were in trouble. Those who had plunged themselves into sin from which they needed to be redeemed and forgiven, they were in trouble. Those who had been banished from the garden were in trouble. Those who had been enslaved 
we're in trouble. And Christ Jesus came and entered into our trouble to get us out of our trouble. You see, Christ loved His bride and gave Himself up for her. This is what happened on the cross. He bore our trouble, as it were, in Himself. We deserved to be punished for our sin. Christ bore our punishment. We were, as it were, naked, in need of clothing. As a, as a man might find his wife in a bad situation, not properly dressed, and might immediately take off his garment and wrap it around her. So Christ did for us. He came and He found His bride in trouble and He wrapped His own righteousness around us to rescue us from our trouble. Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. He came on a rescue mission to get us, not because He was in trouble, but because we were in trouble. <coughs> and He came... <coughs> To sanctify her. This is what verse 26 tells us. Christ Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, or in order to sanctify her. Sanctify has two meanings in Scripture. One is to make morally pure or to, to make clean. That's not particularly what's in view in this passage. What's particularly in view here is the second meaning, which is to set apart. Christ Jesus loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might set her apart for a special use, for a special purpose, to receive special blessings. <clears throat> Christ Jesus came to separate us who the Father had given to Him from the foundation of the earth, from the rest of the world, to be united to us to be in communion with us, to give us forgiveness of sins, to give us new natures, to give His Holy Spirit to us, to walk with us, etc., etc. Christ Jesus loved, him, loved His church and gave Himself up for her to set us apart for a special purpose. Not everyone has the same purpose. You know that. Not all of us have the same destiny, as it were. We're not all going to the same place, as it were. You understand? Some people are going into eternal blessedness with Christ. Some people are going into eternal damnation in hell apart from Christ. What is the difference? The difference is that Christ has come and rescued His bride. That's the difference. The difference is that some of us have been and shall be rescued from our sin by Christ. There's nothing intrinsically different about me or you nothing that intrinsically distinguishes you from those who will perish eternally in hell the difference the difference is not to be found inside of you the difference is to be found in what has happened to you that you are an object of God's mercy that you are loved by Christ and that Christ Jesus loved you and He gave Himself up for you to set you apart. <clears throat> See, Jesus could not have set her, that is the church, apart for special purposes without first giving Himself up for her. Because of justice. How could God treat two equally guilty people in different ways? How could God look upon two people in trouble and say, I'm going to rescue this one and not this one? How could He give blessings to one who deserved curses and give curses to the other who deserved curses? You see, Christ Jesus had to give Himself up for His church if He was going to treat His church differently than He was going to treat anyone else. You see, because God would be unjust to bless those who deserve a curse. God would be unjust to forgive those who deserve damnation. But at the cross, Jesus took the punishment that we deserve and gave us His righteousness so that God would be just in setting us apart 
for a different use, for a different purpose. Next thing we see is that He has cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. And this, is, this seems to be a reference to conversion. Water signifies baptism. The Word signifies the message preached. And the idea here, he's, he's using, he's speaking about it in a somewhat of a poetic way. But he's, he's talking about the Word and the water as having cleansed us. But these two things stand for the whole process that happened. The Word came to you. You believed the Word. And then you were baptized. That whole process of conversion. Theoretically, theoretically, baptism and conversion are inseparable. Theoretically, you don't baptize anyone who's not yet a convert. You don't baptize babies because they haven't yet trusted in Jesus. And theoretically, you don't baptize somebody who's not a real believer, but is a hypocrite trying to trick you. Theoretically, you don't baptize them either. And theoretically, everyone who does believe is baptized. Theoretically, there's nobody who believes in Christ Jesus, but has not yet been baptized as a believer. And so theoretically, those two things go together. Which is why the biblical writers sometimes refer to baptism as <clears throat> signifying the whole process. As in 1 Peter, where he says, baptism saves you. Well, we don't really believe that. The Bible doesn't teach, it clearly doesn't teach, that you are literally forgiven from your sins by going in a tank or being sprinkled with water, having water poured over you or something like that. The Bible teaches that you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But because baptism is theoretically inseparable from conversion, Peter can say that. It's a poetic way of speaking. He's using the part to refer to the whole. Say, baptism saves you. You're saved by coming across from trusting in yourself to trusting in Christ Jesus. By believing in the message that you've heard and uh, the subsequent baptism that theoretically always happens. So that's what's happening here in this passage. You've been washed by the washing, you've been cleansed by the washing of water with the word. You believed, you were baptized, in other words, you were converted, and so you've been cleansed. Now that cleansing is referring to the legal cleansing. Because we we all we all know, especially those of us who have been converted in later years, we all know that you don't instantly change hundred percent and stop sinning when you trust in Jesus and get baptized. We all know that you're not perfected when you're baptized. So you weren't cleansed in in terms of you stopped sinning and now you live a sinless life by the washing of water with the Word. That's not what's in view. What's in view here is the legal cleansing. That by believing in Christ Jesus... Turning your trust away from yourself toward Christ Jesus. Resting your soul completely in Him. You've taken hold of His righteousness and made it your own. You've taken hold of His head, as it were, and confessed your sins and put your sins upon His head as the Old Testament priests used to confess their sins upon the head of the sacrificial animal. And in that sense, your sin has left from you and gone to Christ. And Christ's righteousness has come to you. Legally. Legally. So that in God's eyes, you're counted as righteous because you're clothed in Christ's righteousness. Because your sin has been placed upon Christ and His righteousness has been placed upon you. That's what it means here when it says that He gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. That legal change. But then it goes on to say, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He separated us for a holy use. He cleansed us in order to cleanse us further. You understand what I'm saying? He legally cleansed us. He set us apart. 
And now He's in the process of renewing us, making us entirely new. He's, he's not, because we're clothed in His righteousness, unconcerned about actually changing us. But one goes hand in hand with the other. This legal change and this qualitative change go hand in hand with the other. The legal change is independent upon the qualitative change. In other words, God, God does not wait to declare you legally righteous until you're qualitatively righteous. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And while we are still sinners, God pronounces us as just, declares us as righteous because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. But God actually goes on to change us, to, to make us what we ought to be, to make us qualitatively holy. <clears throat> and so this little section of Scripture, these couple verses are very comprehensive when you think about it. There's a lot loaded into these things in terms of the relationship between Christ and the church. What has Christ done for the church? He is its head and Savior. This is how He has exercised His headship and His salvation. By loving the church. By giving Himself up for her. That He might set her apart for a holy use. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. In order to present the church to Himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. This is how Christ has exercised His headship. This is how Christ is the church's Savior. This is the means by which He has manifested His headship and His salvation. How is Christ the head? Look at how He's exercised His headship. How is Christ the Savior? Look at how He's saved us. So what we see then is that Christ... Christ's headship of the church is not like a cattle drive where you see cowboys on horseback riding behind a big herd of cattle. Or maybe they got whips and there's dogs running around biting and trying to get everybody, all the heads of cattle to go where they need to go. Christ's headship of the church isn't like that. It's not, it's not, it's not rough and inconsiderate and hard and all of these kinds of things. Christ's headship of the church looks like Him loving her and giving Himself up for her. Wooing her and winning her to Himself by the Spirit. Clothing her. Wrapping His own robes of righteousness around her. Washing her. These, this is the language that is used. Which is why we can see in verse 29 that the language... That, that the apostle uses there is nourishes and cherishes her. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. Isaiah 40 and verse 11 talks about how God as our shepherd gently carries those who are with young. And He, he gathers the lambs to himself and carries them close to his heart. This is what the headship of Christ looks like. It's loving. It's tender. It's thoughtful. Christ is strong. Christ is not... Put it this way. Christ didn't talk us out of our trouble or talk to those who held us captive sin, death, hell. Christ crushed them. You understand what I'm saying? Christ is not a weak Savior. Christ is not Himself a soft Savior. He did something strong. He did something manly to win us to Himself, to rescue us from our trouble. But what I'm saying is and, and Christians can look back on our lives and say amen to this. Christ has been soft and tender with us. Christ has been kind to us. Christ has carried us like lambs close to His heart. And even those Christians who have suffered deeply, even those Christians who have suffered immensely, can still say amen. Christ has been to me a good shepherd. 
Christ has been to me a kind shepherd. Yes, there have been times when I felt His rod and His staff, His discipline, but Christ has not been a harsh shepherd with me. Christ has been good to me. The early church father, Polycarp, was martyred at age 86. And they said that they wanted him to recant and he would be spared his death. But he said something like this, 86 years, 86 years, Christ has been so good to me. How could I then turn my back on him now? Christ is a loving, kind, good, gentle, benevolent head of the church, Savior. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church, even as He disciplines her. The word cherish quite literally means, in, in the Greek word that's translated as English, quite literally means to make warm. See, Christ has, Christ has made us warm when we were cold. This is the language of cherishing. When we were in trouble, shivering, freezing, Christ wrapped His robes of righteousness around us and warmed us up. More than that, it's as if He has wrapped His arms around us in an embrace and warmed us up. Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. So now, this is what Christ has done for the church. Back to husbands and wives and where we left it. The objection, it's too scary. It's too scary to enter into a relationship till death do us part. A relationship of which Christ says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. A relationship like that, where the expectation is that the wife will submit to the husband as unto the Lord. Back to the objection, it's too scary. Well, certainly we can all recognize that it would be scary to be in a relationship with an ungodly man in which you're expected to submit to him as unto the Lord. And a couple of things about that. One is, this biblical injunction to wives is not a license for a husband to treat his wife however he wants and for her to just go along with it silently. That's not the case. Every man is accountable to God, first of all. But there's a real earthly accountability for all men to the state. A man should not abuse a woman. And if he does, he should be reported to the state, not complied with. So there's that external authority that it's not just the man has carte blanche authority to do whatever he wants in the home. For those who are Christian men and members of a church, there's also church authority. That again, a man is not just the Pope. That no one is above and no one can say anything to him about the way he treats his wife. A man is accountable to God for how he treats his wife. But externally, there's an accountability to the church. And so it's right for other men to speak into the life of a Christian husband and say, Listen, man, you... You're not loving your wife like Christ loved the church. The way you spoke to her, you think that's nourishing and cherishing? The way that you're treating her in the home? Are you keeping her warm? You understand? And when something goes wrong and it's, it's difficult to reconcile within the marriage, there's, there's support from the church in helping bring that to a reconciliation and bring that to a resolution. And there's accountability from the church. A church. Any good church will practice church discipline. Which means that if a man is unrepentant, the, the church will act in a disciplinary way against that husband who's being an ungodly husband. And so, it's not a carte blanche license for a husband to treat his wife however he wants to treat his wife. 
And it should go without saying that if, if he's under the authority of God, he doesn't have the authority to try to get his wife to do something that God says she shouldn't do or he shouldn't be doing. She doesn't need to be complicit in his sin. Right? And so this is not just a carte blanche license for anything goes. But this is insofar as things are not demanded by God's law, insofar as things are legal and moral and, and right and within the appropriate bounds of morality and goodness and, and rightness and so on and so forth, the woman should be deferring leadership to her husband in these matters. And even the scripture even uses in another section the word obey. That sometimes there is a situation where a husband and wife, after talking through something, can't come to agreement about something. In such cases, the man should take the leadership in this situation. And the wife should submit to her husband in a situation like that. This is the teaching of Scripture. So yes, it can be scary if there is an ungodly husband in the picture. But let's think back now to Christ and the church though. We just talked about what's less than ideal. But could you submit to a man, ladies, who is like Christ in all of the ways that I just described? A man who is ready to rescue his bride from trouble? A man who nourishes and cherishes you? A man who is willing to spend himself for your good? A man who is benevolent? Warming intimacy of every sort between the two of you? Warming intimacy between you and God? Leading you in family worship? Leading you in prayer? Listening to you? Talking with you? Encouraging your heart with the things of God? Can you follow a man like that? Can you submit to a man like that? That's the ideal. That's what really should be happening. Husbands should be like that. And wives should be submissive to husbands that are like that. So this, this objection that it's scary holds some weight. It is kind of scary. It is kind of scary. But it's also the teaching of Scripture. And there are lots of things in Scripture that God asks us to do that are hard, that are difficult. But what we see when we consider the contrast between the ideal and the less than ideal what we see is that the, the mere authority and submission dynamic is not the problem. The problem is the misuse of authority by an ungodly man. And that's a big difference. If, if somebody backs into your fence with a car, the car is not the problem. You shouldn't say, well, no one should drive because things get damaged, right? The car is not the problem. The misuse of the car is the problem. And so it is with a dynamic of authority and submission. In and of itself, it's not a problem. And when headship is being exercised in an ideal way, there's no issue. And it's actually not scary. But when headship is not being exercised in an ideal way, in other words, when there's sin involved, it gets worse. So what's the problem then? Sin. As always. Right? The way that God designs things is not the problem. The problem is the misuse of the way that God has designed things. Let's go now though and talk about husbands. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We just talked about the ideal man. Men in this church, you ought to be as close as is possible for a redeemed sinner, you ought to be the ideal man. You ought to be like Christ Jesus. You ought to nourish and cherish your wife. Again, keeping her warm. Intimacy of every sort, man. You should be moving, you should be moving toward your husbands to initiate closeness between you and her. Talking with her. Listening with her. Spending time together. Building the kind of marriage that is enviable. 
with her. This is what you should be doing. If she's in trouble, you should be going to great lengths to help her get out of her trouble. You should be... You can't give your life on a cross to forgive her sin. You can't, you can't cleanse her by washing of water with the Word. And by the way, that doesn't mean that you make your wife cleaner as you do family worship with her, which is so often the application of this, this passage. Christ did that. He cleansed her by washing of water with the Word. But that we would get on board with those purposes that Christ has for our wives, especially if they're Christians, men. Right? If they're not Christians, we should be praying for them, talking to them earnestly and lovingly, tenderly about Christ, and so on and so forth. But especially if they're Christians, brothers, Christ loved your wife and gave Himself for her to sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the Word that He might present her, among others, to Himself. Holy and blameless, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Man, you've got to get on board with that. This is what God's purpose is for your wife. You've got to get on board with that. And that does lead us to things like family worship. Praying together. Talking to her about important spiritual matters. Answering her questions. Asking her questions. Listening to her insights. Growing together. Right? Not only keeping the relationship between you and her warm, but keeping the relationship between her and God warm. Cherishing not only the relationship that you have with her, but the relationship that she has with God. This is what you should be doing in your marriage. Practically, you need to be leading her to church. Man, you've got to be exemplary churchmen. Exemplary leaders of the family in this respect. It's part of cherishing your wife. Love, we need to be in church with God's people. Worshiping coming under the sound of biblical preaching, listening to the Word as it's read, joining our hearts and our voices in song, joining our hearts in prayer with our brothers and sisters, partaking of the Lord's table. Sweetheart, we've got to be there. It's part of cherishing. Things like watching your kids. Remember, they're not her kids. They're, they're together, your kids. Don't always, be, don't always be punting childcare to your wife like it's always her job. Take, take your kids, spend some time with them, and say, sweetheart, go, go spend some time with the Lord. You know, go, go grow in Christ, be nourished, be replenished. This is a practical way that you can nourish and cherish your wife. This is a practical way that you can get on board with what God is doing in your wife's heart, in your wife's life. And of course, leading in family worship. God does not deserve our worship only on Sundays. Does God deserve our worship on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays and Saturdays? Yes, He does. Does He deserve worship from you only? No. What about your wife? What about your kids? Man, if you're going to be leaders in your home, which is what this passage teaches you to be, you've got to lead well. It doesn't just say, husbands, lead your homes however you see fit. Husbands, lead your homes like Christ has led the church. That's why we sang before the sermon, all the way my Savior leads me. Go back and read that one. The lyrics, number 172 in our hymn books. All the way my Savior leads me. And all the way, all the way till death do you part, you need to lead your wife. Like that. Family worship. Let's, let's worship God together. I want to cherish not only my relationship with God such that I read my Bible and I pray independently on mornings, but I want to cherish my wife's relationship with God and make space for that, make time for that in her schedule, in our schedule. I want to cherish, and this is not primarily in view, but it goes with children too. I want to cherish their relationship with God and lead them toward Christ. But coming back to focusing on our wives, how can you nourish and cherish your wife? How's her heart doing? She's struggling? She tired? Does she have time to stop and think? Does she have time to process what's going on in her life? Does she have energy? Does she need to be replenished? Does she need encouragement? 
Does she need edification? Sometimes does she need correction? That is part of loving care. That's part of even the way that our tender and gentle shepherd cares for us. Sometimes we should be bringing in a word of correction as well. But how can we nourish her? How can we cherish her? These are things that the scripture places upon our shoulders. We need to be this kind, these kinds of men. And again, some might object, well, that's hard. Yeah, it is hard. Right? Just like it's scary for your wives to submit to you, so it's hard for you to love her like Christ loved the church. Well, I'm tired when I get home from work. Well, guess what? She's tired too. <laughs> right? Well, I need, I need some downtime. Well, she needs some downtime too. Right? Well, I need to take care of my relationship with God. Yeah, she needs to take care of her relationship with God too. Elsewhere in the scripture, the woman is called the weaker vessel. And again, that's one that generates a little bit of heat. We'll come to it eventually, I'm sure, if God should tarry and spares my life. Eventually we'll get to 1 Peter. But elsewhere in scripture, she's called the weaker vessel. Implicitly, that means that the man is the stronger vessel. Now let's flip that one on its head for a moment. If you're the stronger vessel... That means you should be carrying more than 50% of your household responsibilities, no? So add up all the things that you and your wife got to do together. All of the things that got to get done in the household. Your job, her job, uh, all of the responsibilities in terms of your volunteer time, all of the time caring for the kids, preparing meals, add it all up. Now divide it by two. And take at least, at least that share. But really and truly, if you're the stronger vessel, you should be taking more. Love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, then I'm not going to have time to do my hobbies. Well, then drop your hobbies, man. Your, your wife is more important. Well, then I'm not going to have enough time for this or enough time for that. Well, drop these things. The scripture doesn't tell you to go have fun with your buddies. There's no, there's no passage in scripture, not one, that says that you've got you to get together with the guys and have fun. Not one. But there's a lot in the New Testament about how you've got to treat your wife. So get the first things first, man. Yes, it is hard. I was talking with somebody recently over the last few weeks. <clears throat> And we were just talking about how if you're actually doing the things that God tells you in the scripture to be doing, working hard at your job as unto the Lord, loving your family, serving your family, training up your children in the way they should go, nourishing and cherishing your wife. So you're doing family worship, you're helping with all of the household things, cleaning, cooking, and you're doing, you're doing all these things. You basically don't have time left. So that might mean like years of your life are going to go by before you have a lot of time to devote to a hobby. Yeah, that's right. That's the, that's the biblical portrait of things. Life is not about your leisure. Life is not about your fun. Life is not about these things. Life is about you being conformed to the character of Christ. He didn't predestine us that we might be conformed to the image of of Hollywood actors or celebrities or our neighbors but he predestined us for conformity to his son this is what the scripture tells us the fruit of the spirit is not leisure relaxation fun hobbies etc etc what we got to be doing as men is embracing this admittedly difficult task of being like Christ and giving ourselves up for, particularly in view this morning, our wives. So married men, including myself, we got to repent. Whenever I look at this law in Scripture... 
It's like when I look at any of the other laws in Scripture. I'm not, I don't receive a pat on the back like, yeah, I'm good in this area. I'm fine in this area. As with any other of the, the laws that were given in Scripture, any of the other imperatives, if we're honest, if we're humble, we're not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, we see we fall short in, this, in these ways. This is why we need a Savior. Right? We're not saved by law-keeping. But after we're saved by Christ and Christ alone, the law continues to serve for us as a guide, as a rule of life. Right? We're still under imperatives as Christians. So we trust in Christ and we cr- in, in Christ alone, but we get back on track. And we try to bring our lives back into conformity with what God would have us do and with who God would have us be. So married men, including myself, we've got to repent. Single men, you should be trying to become these kind of guys. Don't wait till you're married. If you're preparing for marriage, you should be looking closely at passages like this, thinking, where is my life out of order in this respect? How do I need to work on my life in order to bring it into conformity with this biblical teaching in order that when we get married, I can love my wife like Christ loved the church. I've said this to a number of single men over the last five years that I've been serving as a pastor in various churches, but I've I've said this on several occasions to single men. You You need to stop spending so much time looking for a good wife and you need to refocus more of your energy on trying to become a good husband. So many single guys are just out there trying to get a wife. Well, what, how are you going to treat her once you get married? What are you going to do once you get married? Start working on your own sanctification, your own character. You worry about you. Get ready to be a good, godly husband. And in fact, ironically, probably that's going to make it a little bit easier to find a wife too. But you can't do it for that reason, right? But anyway, nevertheless, spend more time worrying about getting ready to be a good, godly man rather than trying to find a good woman. So, last thing I'm going to say to men before I bring this to a close This imperative is not conditioned upon the perceived worthiness of your wife. Christ's love for His bride is the standard. Firstly, if you're like, yeah, but you don't know my wife. Firstly, you probably have a real sour attitude toward your wife. And you should check your heart because she's probably not as bad as you think. If you feel like that. But secondly, even if we grant for the sake of argument that your wife is hard to live with, still, there's far less distance between you and her than between Christ and His bride. So we need to know well that this imperative is not conditioned upon the perceived worthiness of our wives. Regardless of who she is, what she does, how she acts, yeah, but she did this, or she does this, or this is, never mind all that. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So Paul tells us that our marriage ought to be a picture of Christ and the church. At best, it's a beautiful picture. When a husband is loving his wife as Christ loved the church. And when a wife is submitting to her husband as unto the Lord, there's a beautiful picture painted. A beautiful picture painted of Christ in the church. It's a true and a beautiful picture. And it's actually really good for human flourishing as all of God's laws are. At worst, we've all seen bad marriages. At worst, the picture that is painted in a marriage is horribly skewed and marred. So there's a spectrum in terms of what kind of picture will our marriage actually paint. All the way from a really, really bad picture to a really, really good picture. 
But we're not responsible each individually for the overall picture of our marriage. What we're responsible for individually is how we contribute to that overall picture of the marriage. Each of us as individuals can and ought to choose to paint the truest picture that we can insofar as possible, regardless of what our spouse does. Wives, when you submit to ungodly husbands out of reverence for Christ, as the church also submits to Christ, you are honoring Christ. And insofar as is possible from your end, you're telling the truth about Christ and the church. Husbands, the same is true for you. When you love your wives, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, even when she's not responding to your love the way that you would hope that she would, or the way that you would want her to, or whatever, insofar as is possible from your end, you're telling the truth about Christ and the church. So may we all individually keep this beautiful picture, this beautiful, pardon me, this beautiful truth about who Christ is and what He's done for the church at the forefront of our minds. And then would we who are married be like, we're going to tell the best, we're going to paint the best picture that we can of that relationship between Christ and the church. Would we each individually Say, whatever my spouse does, I'm going to try to paint as best as I can a true picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And would would you who are single, if you are preparing to be married someday, get this ideal in your minds now. Now. Now and begin working toward these things such that the marriages present and future here at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church would tell the truth, would paint a beautiful and good picture of the relationship between Christ and the church before the watching world 